Today's podcast is brought to you by 2Before. 2Before is an all-natural pre-workout made from New Zealand blackcurrants. For those who aren't familiar, blackcurrants are berries that have been shown to help increase vasodilation, reduce inflammation, and improve recovery, meaning that you'll get the most out of the work you're putting in and will bounce back from training quicker. This product is research-backed and benefit-packed. It is made from three simple ingredients and available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. 2Before can fit into any training schedule. 2Before is Inform Sports certified and is currently used by teams in the NFL, NBA, NCAA, and Olympic teams across the U.S. I have found great value from using 2Before in my everyday training, and I personally feel very energized and ready to attack the day's work after having 2Before, and also feel some reduction in inflammation and the recovery benefits that I talked about previously. If you're ready to see improvements in your performance, I highly recommend trying out 2Before today. And my friends over at 2Before have this awesome offer where you can get a sample pack for only $8.99 online at 2Before.com. And it is also available on Amazon. That is 2Before with the number 2 with the word before.com. Again, the number 2 with the word before.com. I've also left a link to it in the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Running Effect podcast with Dominic Schleter. I'm your host, Dominic, and many of you guys listening right now, in fact, a majority of you guys listening right now have not given us a follow and a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it if you hit the follow button, hit the five-star review button right now. It takes between five and 10 seconds and helps us out exponentially. And then something all of you guys can do is share today's episode with a friend or a family member, someone who you think would find value and benefit from it. Back on the podcast today is the one and only Alex Osberg. He's been on the podcast before and is a close friend and mentor who is wise beyond his years. And Alex brings this wisdom to the podcast today. And in fact, I think today's 60-minute conversation has more wisdom and depth packed into it than almost, if not every podcast I've ever done before. Alex is an incredibly perspicacious speaker and always brings such depth and value to each of our conversations with each other. But today, he kind of brings up a list of different points that he wants to go through, and we kind of dive into those different points, some of which include why most champions are broken, how to improve your luck, the stepping up fallacy, why the saying how you do one thing is how you do everything is a myth, how success is largely the failures you avoid, and much, much more. I personally found such value from today's conversation, and I know you guys will as well. I would highly recommend getting out like a a paper and a pen or opening the notes app on your phone and just jotting down your thoughts while listening to today's episode. And then you can also comment below if you're listening on Spotify what you thought of the episode. I would absolutely love to hear your thoughts on the subjects discussed today. So enough of my rambling. Uh, I hope you guys all enjoy the man, the myth, the legend, Alex Osberg. Alex Osberg, welcome back to the podcast. I told you it wouldn't be long, and it, it wasn't too long, so I appreciate you coming back on, sharing some wisdom today. Yeah, thank you. I think we said that between podcast one and podcast two is about a thousand days, give or take, so we've done better. <laughs> we'll take we've a We've done month. better this time around. Yeah. Explain your situation to the people listening at home. Oh, yeah. I was just telling you earlier that, um, you know, I live in uh, North Chapel Hill, and we got an email this morning at 9.57. I was actually out running at the time, but our power went out. And there was really no logical explanation for why that happened. Uh, there's no trees down. There's no storms going on. So I've spent the past six to seven hours of my day uh, trying to make do with no Wi-Fi, which is an unbelievably difficult task um, because we have become so reliant on modern technology that when it gets taken away from us, we really don't know what to do with ourselves. And I was just joking with you earlier. I mean, the human race survived for thousands and thousands of years with no Wi-Fi, with no electricity. But uh, it's one of those modern conveniences we've taken for granted and now can't live without. So I've been trying to calm my frustration and just roll with the punches. Uh, and here we are. We're able to make it work. We just got power restored about an hour ago. So I'm very curious to hear, Alex, which accomplishment will be more impressive, completing this podcast with the power out or breaking four minutes of the mile after the Stanford bus goes on fire? Oh, man. I mean, one of those was in my control. The other one was out of my control. I guess... Even the bus fire was slightly out of my control, but all the work that came before that sub four minute mile was something that I can take credit for. I can't take credit for uh, for fixing the power here. That's not in my area of expertise. Real quickly, give like a 45 second explanation of the, the bus fire because I'm realizing that probably a lot of people <laughs> don't know what happened there and are probably really confused why I said that. For sure. I mean, all you probably really need to do is just go into Google and type like Stanford track and field bus fire, Seattle, 
and you'll get some images that probably are worth a thousand words here. But yeah, <laughs> January 25th, uh, I believe that would have been 2019. We were traveling up to the Dempsey. Uh, we fly into Seattle and then we get bused from there to the meet, um, to, to the track to do pre-meet. And um, about 10 minutes into the 20 minute ride, we start to notice this like terrible stench of like burning rubber. And then we hear like a gunshot sound and all of a sudden smoke starts billowing up from the back right tire. And so the bus driver pulls over to the side on the I-5, which is one of the most busy interstate highways in Washington. And we all are told to exit the bus as quickly as we possibly can. And within about 10 to 15 minutes, the entire thing is just engulfed in flames. Uh, thankfully, uh, nothing exploded. Uh, our, our suitcases made it out alive, um, but everything reeked of smoke. So that when we got into the Dempsey, everyone just started smelling smoke when we were doing our pre-meet. Uh, and everything went smoothly besides the fact that we probably caused some major inconveniences to people commuting on the I-5 that afternoon. Anyway, when it was all said and done, uh, the next day was the day I first broke four minutes in the mile. So it gave me a good story to tell. I love it. I love it. So let's dive into some topics we want to discuss today. Uh, the the best way, in my opinion, to go about this is to dive right into it, throw people into the deep end. There's a saying I've heard throughout the years, and I brought it up to you a few times on phone conversations, that the way you do one thing is the way you do all things or something like that. Can you elaborate on this point and whether you think it's true or not? So we've had several discussions about this philosophy in life, I guess you could call it. And I used to believe it. I used to fully buy into it. Until I started to challenge the premise a little bit and I started to actually analyze if the people who were saying it actually abided by this philosophy. And it may be true in very select circumstances, but I've kind of come to the conclusion that this thing sounds great in theory, that the way you do one thing is the way you do all things, but it kind of fails in practice. And I think there's two things you have to consider here. It's the people who are saying it, um, and then it's observing the people who are saying it. And what I mean by that is, you know, the people who are saying this typically are like our heroes, they're our role models. And because of that, we really endorse the philosophy. Um, but you have to consider two, two things here. The first is that uh, our heroes are really good at projecting an image of who they are. But the reality is, having been around a lot of high performers, that they're just regular people who make mistakes and failures outside of the public eye. They have double standards, they're bad at certain things, but it's just not publicized, at least not all the time. And then there's also this concept um, from an observer standpoint, which is it's called the halo effect in psychology, where for people who are really, really good at one thing, people tend to assume that they're really good at other unrelated things. Like, for instance, there's been psychological studies that people who are really attractive are also assumed to be incredibly smart, even though there's no relationship or correlation between the two factors. Um, but because of this halo effect, we think that they're really, really good at everything that they do. When in reality, I just don't think that's true. Um, so that's one thing. One thing is just considering who's saying it and if it's actually true from their perspective. And I kind of would disagree with that. And the second thing is, the other reason I don't like this phrase that much is because it puts forth the assumption that you can do everything in life well. And I really fundamentally disagree with that because the longer I've lived, the more I've come to realize that life is about trade-offs, right? Like, I guess, if you're born into the right family at the right time and you have a lot of luck on your side, you can probably do anything you want, but not everything that you want, right? This is a quote we both heard on that podcast we were listening to recently. Um, and I think by definition, if you're going to do one or two things really, really well, you have to neglect a whole lot of other things. And nobody possesses enough time in the day or enough willpower to do everything well. I think when I was in college, someone approached me and they said to me, listen, you've got three things you have to consider here. A social life, good grades, and sleep. You can only pick two. You can't have all three. And I was like, no, no, that's not true. Like, I bet I could do all three really well. And I started to realize, like, to do something well, there's a minimum time investment required, right? And it probably means you're going to have to settle for being average in a lot of other things in life. There was also a really interesting statistic that I think illustrates this point well that I came across recently. I think it was from someone named Robin Dunbar who said that if you enter into a romantic relationship, on average, you're going to lose two friends because of it. I mean, that's kind of it's kind of harsh, but like it's pretty true. Like the the minimum amount of time that a partner deserves means you're probably going to sacrifice two friends in the process. So, I think that trying to do everything well and trying to be really well rounded just doesn't really work in practice. 
there was a great article that came out last fall about Emily Sisson's buildup um, to her marathon where she set the American record. It was actually written by Molly Huddle. And she said, forget about trying to be well-rounded. It's actually cool to be pointy, right? To have a very narrow area of expertise and to excel at that one thing, even if that means you're doing it at the expense of others. And this is not a life that I think everyone should try to live. I mean, not everyone wants to be elite at one thing. They want to be good at some other things. And that's fine. That's a personal choice you want to make. But for instance, I don't want my surgeon to be a great concert jazz pianist. You know, I want them to be sleeping before my procedure, you know? And so (laughs) I think that you can't have it all at once. And every additional commitment that you take on in life comes with a price tag. And a lot of times that that could include money, it could include sacrificing relationships, time or willpower. And that price tag oftentimes isn't really, uh, it's oftentimes invisible up front, and you don't realize you're in debt until it's too late. So I think that we just really need to consider what it means to try and do everything well, and also consider if that's something that you really want to strive for. If you want to do one thing really well, but not at the expense of others, then it's probably worth allowing your priorities to shift throughout the year, right? Like everything in life has a season. And I think I read this great book, we've talked about it several times, called The Passion Paradox, written by Brad and Steve. And and they really try to make the point that if you go all in on one extreme for a period of time, that's okay, but then like let the pendulum swing back, right? So if you're gonna go all in on running and run 120 miles per week when you're training for a marathon build, fine. But then like after you run that marathon, you know, do what Elliot Kipchoge does, take a month off, spend time with your family, you know? So if you zoom in on the micro, people may be very, very unbalanced in their life. But then if you zoom out to a long enough time horizon, maybe there's going to be more balance there. So yeah, I just think that like everything in today's world has become so super specialized and penetrating the top 1% is so incredibly hard to do that it's hard to get to that point with any sort of balanced lifestyle. And quite frankly, I think you have to be a little bit dysfunctional to get to that point. Like Roger Bannister 50 years ago broke four minutes in the mile while he was studying to become a doctor. You just don't see med students, you know, setting world records anymore. Like it's practically impossible. And yeah, you just you just don't see it. And I think it's, it's for the, those reasons that I've been talking about. Off of the points you were making there, specifically towards the end about balance, I think that's something I personally hear a lot in culture that you need to live a balanced life and it's not even in relation to the the saying that we hear all the time that kind of stem this discussion. More so just like you need to be balanced. You can't go all in on one thing. You can't be uh, short-sighted in one thing. And I do think there's some truth to that. But kind of going off of the points you're sharing there, I think it kind of that mindset uh, holds you back from being really, really good at specific things. So could you maybe share some more of your perspective on the term balance and people who say, you know, you need to live a very, very balanced life and not get too involved in one thing? <laughs> My first response to that would be don't let anyone else tell you how you should value your own priorities. Because <laughs> that's a very personal calculation you need to make, right? Like, if you want to just go all in on something and let that come at the expense of other hobbies and other things that other people consider fun, fine, so be it. But that's a personal choice. The only thing I consider, or I, I would urge people to consider is um, make sure you maintain your degree of self-awareness in that process. You may lose balance and you might intentionally lose balance at different points in your life, but at least have the self-awareness to realize what you're sacrificing such that you don't realize it when it's too late. Let's go through the next point here, which I'm really curious to to talk about and dive deeper into specifically because I think we like brushed over this subject last episode where we talked about just enough where I was like, that's really interesting. I want to bring it up next time. So we're bringing it up next time. Champions tend to be broken people. Elaborate on this one. Every one of these points that I made, um, they might be slight over generalizations and they might, but I was, I'm trying to be provocative here. So I think that's, that's the most interesting place to approach a conversation. So I, I want to be very clear that I'm sure there are some people who are champions that have it all figured out, but you know, I, the longer I've stayed in like the elite running space, the more I've realized that not everybody is pursuing something because it's virtuous. A lot of times they're driven by, like I said in the last podcast, factors that they're, they're pushed and pulled by things that rarely break the surface, but they're really running away from fear and insecurity a lot of the times. And that's, that's undeniably a very, very powerful motivator. Um, I think that when you evaluate your heroes, you have to realize that you can't just look at what they've achieved. You also have to realize what they've sacrificed to get there, right? I think that's a really common misconception. And the reality is that your heroes have probably gotten 
this relates to the last point, right? They've gotten really, really good at one thing at the expense of many, many other things in their life. And they tend to be broken in the sense that they don't have an off button. They're willing to hurt more, they're willing to endure more pain, and they're willing to run away from more pain than other people are. And there was, uh, I watched this documentary over the last, over this past weekend about Conor McGregor. It just came out last week. It's called McGregor Forever. I'm pretty fascinated. I was pretty fascinated by Conor McGregor. Still am to some degree. Um, and the quote was that reasonable men never achieved anything. And Conor is a very unreasonable man. That was <laughs> something that his trainer said. Uh, and it's, it's very true. I mean, Conor McGregor brought UFC into the mainstream media. He was one of the highest paid athletes in the world, right? Between maybe 2016 and, and 2020. Um, but that came with some serious side effects. And you're seeing the consequences of the person he created himself into. You're seeing those things unfold um, in real time. You know, to be really, really successful in the UFC and other domains, you need to harbor such intense feelings of hate and fearlessness that it often causes destruction in other parts of your life. And not a lot of people think about that. They just think about the great parts of being uh, a famous UFC athlete, but like not the unintended side effects of that. You know, I, I also was reading this book the other day that said, you don't want to be famous. Read the autobiography of any famous person and you'll realize it's a pretty miserable existence. You know, so it goes along with the same point here is fame comes with a cost and you have to consider what that cost was or what that what that cost is rather. I also think that there's a very, very fine line between addiction and a virtuous pursuit in life. I mean, you look at, for instance, you know, take it to the extreme, like a drug addict, right, who has created their entire existence around their next high. I mean, it's a, it's a terribly sad existence. I see it all the time in the hospital, but they're willing to put an enormous amount of effort and, and money into like buying any drug that they can get their hands on just for that next dopamine hit. And it's incredibly destructive. It destroys families, it destroys lives. Um, and their existence, like I said, becomes reliant on that drug. How different really is that? There are obvious differences that I can talk about, but how different is that than an elite athlete who is pursuing success at the expense of so many other things in life, right? Like I'm talking about like the elite of the elite, right? People who are going for gold medals. If you're an elite swimmer, for instance, that means training for about 30 hours per week where you're basically just staring at a black line at the bottom of a pool, you know, like that's, that's kind of an addiction too. Now, obviously like we attach very different virtues as a society to the benefits you get out of that. We've decided that, you know, pursuing gold medals is much more virtuous than pursuing a drug. Um, but it's the same neural circuitry going on at the same time, you know, and it can have the same side effects in your life. You can lose relationships, you can destroy family lives over the, the pursuit of success. So I just think that anything taken to the extreme can be toxic and the dose determines the poison, no matter what the, no matter what the endeavor. I think these subjects beg the question, how do you go about living a successful life or being successful in a specific endeavor in a sustainable way that's not destructive to you and those around you? Right. I mean, that's like uh, the question. I'm gonna, yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to steal an idea from the podcast you sent me yesterday. This was with uh, Chris Williamson and Alex Formosi. The question you have to ask yourself is what are you optimizing for? Right. If you're optimizing for success, they've done they've done studies on like what are the commonalities between the most successful people in the world, like hyper successful CEOs, athletes and whatnot. And there's a lot of different things that people do in terms of their routines and their habits to be successful. But the three most common things was a crippling sense of insecurity, a superiority complex and impulse control. And that was very clarifying to me because it's like if you want to be really, really successful, you're probably going to have to have those things in some degree. You're probably going to have to possess those traits. But if you want to just be content in life, there's a lot of different ways to become content. You know, so I think it's it's a matter of um, being very intentional with how you structure your life and what goals you decide you want to go for. Uh, because there are certain things if you want to be a gold medalist in track and field, you need to be going to altitude camp. You need to be running most likely 80 to 100, maybe 120 miles per week. Those are non-negotiable things. If you wanna be peaceful and you wanna be content and happy, there's almost an infinite number of ways to do that that don't require you to, uh, to chase the same external markers of success. 
That's my answer. Do you think those trade-offs are worth it to reach the pinnacle of a sport, or do you more view that question as a personal one for the listener or for yourself? Like, especially for yourself, <laughs> I'm really curious about this. Yeah. And I don't want to discredit all the hard work you've put in over the years, but you have yeah. enough base talent to be really, really good at the sport. So yeah. with someone who is gifted with this extreme gift of being good at distance running, how do you grapple with these questions of like, okay, should I set aside two years of my life to go all in on this thing and see if I can make it? Or should I be content yeah. doing what I'm doing now? In giving advice to other people, it's such a personal calculation that you need to make. Um, the opportunity cost of pursuing something at a really high level is something that's just so personalized. Because by doing that one thing, you're by definition going to have to give up many other things. And it just depends on what your values are. I mean, being an elite distance runner is kind of a selfish existence. Like you need to take as much energy from the world and try and channel that into running as fast as you possibly can. I don't, I'm not saying that's like a bad thing to do. If you do it for two years and then you decide you want to go, you know, be a brand ambassador or you want to go help the community. Um, so there's, there's two different ways to approach this problem. You can try to strive for some sense of balance within the year, or you can, or you can strive for sequencing your goals, right? Achieving one thing and then, putting it aside and then going for another thing. I've decided that like, to me, the pursuit of just trying to be as fast as I can in and of itself doesn't give me enough um, satisfaction or gratitude. Like I'm not, um, it, yeah, I guess it just doesn't give me quite enough satisfaction um, in life to want to do that independently. I've always wanted to dip my toes in other parts of my, my, uh, my passions and my personality. And to me, that's a more harmonious way of, of pursuing my passion. I think, as long, like I said, it's about self-awareness, right? Like it's very easy to let the inertia of a passionate experience sweep you off your feet such that you never really realize what you're missing out on. But if you're very calculated and you have good self-awareness, then, you know, you should be able to make an educated decision at each step in the way, each step of the, of the journey. And, you know, I think just be mindful, like you have, you have autonomy in the journey, right? Like you can decide what you want to do. I mean, I probably could have gotten a professional contract last summer but I really like living in Chapel Hill. I really like my roommates. I like the relationship I have with my coach. I could have packed up and moved to Flagstaff and probably been on, you know, like a minimal contract just to chase that dream. But to me, that wasn't worth it. I think I was going to get more out of my running if I could do it on my own terms, stay with my coach, stay with my friends and be happier in the process. So um, that's where I've ended up because of it. But, you know, someone else can end up somewhere very different because they have different priorities. I know people are absolutely individualistic and have their own lives, and, and that is a big thing that you're kind of touching on there, that you know they'll have to sit down and ask themselves these questions. But with that being said, what do you wish the takeaway to be from a listener who just heard what you said there in relation to my previous question? Like, What do you want them to take away from your own discovery within these pursuits of these questions? One of the problems we have with goals and aspirations in life is that they give us a very rigid view of the world where it's this pass fail all or nothing pursuit. And you define success, not by how much progress you've made from the starting line, but anything short of the finish line is considered a failure. And I think there's just so many different ways to be successful in distance running and enjoy the sport beyond just chasing times. I think there's relationships that come out of it. I think there's life lessons that come out of it. So I would be mindful in tying up your success entirely in what your PRs are, but rather think about everything that you've gone through and all the growth that you've made just by becoming a, by embracing the identity of a runner. Um, I think that when it comes to goals, like there's this, there's this, you know, when you're pursuing a goal, you, it's very easy to um, kind of get stuck with this myopic view of the world where like, Achievement is the only thing that matters here, rather than broadening your perspective. Um, and even in the face of like a failing course of action, when you realize that your kind of things are going downhill and you're reaching a breaking point, it's actually not that obvious to the person in the moment, right? Even if it's abundantly clear to those around you. I think that there's this, um, this concept in psychology called the sunk cost fallacy, right? Where if you've invested enough in a particular goal, when you reach these critical junctures in life, and it becomes more obvious that you're failing, you actually tend to double down, putting more and more resources into a failing course of action, even in the light of evidence that things aren't going to work out. 
And so, and so just to define the sunk, the sunk cost fallacy, it's like when you're evaluating the value of a future investment, you actually have trouble ignoring what you've already invested. So just to give you like a simple example here that I was thinking about is, um, let's say that you buy like concert tickets, right? And it's an artist you're really excited to go see. Um, and they're 50 bucks. So you spend 50 bucks on the concert tickets. But say you get to the night of the concert and you're now feeling sick uh, and it's pouring rain outside. Okay. If you were to ask that person in the moment, is it a good idea to go to this concert? Would I pay 50 bucks today? Very few people would say yes, because they know it's going to be miserable. They know they're going to be cold and rain. It's going to be rainy and they're sick and they'd be far better off just staying in bed. But people don't do that, right? People think I've already invested 50 bucks in this concert. I need to go. And it's funny because from like a purely economic and rational perspective, you should consider only the future costs and benefits when you're deciding on a course of action. But this never actually happens, especially when emotions get get um, incorporated into the picture. And And I think goals work in life, but the problem with goals is they work to the point where they make us ignore clear signals that sometimes the goal is not worth pursuing anymore, right? And we tend to be really poor forecasters of our future selves. Um, and I, this is all kind of going back to the advice of what would I tell someone who's thinking about what they want running to look like in their life. You know, imagining a future goal is really easy and actually quite fun. But imagining a goal in the context of the realistic stressors and the changes that come with competitive pursuits is like entirely different. But despite those changes in the world, that goal remains fixed, right? And we forget that like the world evolves and our preferences evolve and the value that we attach to the costs and benefits of things change. There's this other concept in psychology, which I love. It's called the end of history illusion which is basically that humans are really, really good at acknowledging how much growth we've had over the prior five to 10 years, how much our perspectives have changed, how much we've grown, how much we've actually um, evolved as human beings. But once you've reached the present moment, we have this tendency to think that all our development is now gonna remain stuck in amber indefinitely, that we're not gonna have nearly the same de degree of growth and evolution that we've had over the past five to 10 years. But you realize like that's not logical. Like if you've grown over the past five to 10 years, you're gonna keep growing over the next five to 10 years. And so you have to, when you're pursuing a goal, you need to rerun the cost benefit analysis as you go. But we don't, we never do that. We never rerun it. We just keep the goal fixed because we have this prior evaluation of the situation and we wanna stay committed to that process. And we, like I said before, we get swept up by the inertia of that goal. So I think one of the things that we could do a lot better with is, um, you know, understanding when it's time to step away from something and when it's time to change our relationship with something. I read this great book a few weeks ago called Quit by Annie Duke. She was a professional poker player and she kind of uses poker as a framework to analyze decision making. And she says that for anything in life, like you need to be very finely attuned to whether quitting is because of a lack of persistence or because you're actually astutely aware that there's better matches available. I mean, if you're actually like we i think that we fail because we don't have the the guts to to quit like because we fail because we stick with goals that we don't have the guts to quit right and if you think about it we actually look at um our goals as something like we, we always look backwards in terms of the amount of time like because of the sunk cost fallacy all the time and energy we've invested into something and we feel like if we walk away from something else or we change our perspective that means we've wasted everything that we've put into it but like those are resources you can't get back anyway, right? And you need to start thinking about changing your priorities as a forward-looking problem. And that every ounce of energy that you put into a task that's no longer worthwhile, that's really a waste. We have this idea of what goals are, and we have this idea of what it means to stubbornly, uh, and, and, uh, to stubbornly pursue a goal and to persevere through challenges. And those are all really good qualities. But we also need to rerun that cost-benefit analysis and think about you know what, is this serving me the way that, that it served me when I set this goal in the first place? That was a really long answer to your question. <laughs> I love it though. That's that's the point of a, a long form podcast, not a Instagram story or whatever else we yeah. can do. Something going off of this as you were talking there and as you were sharing that fallacy, which I've never heard of before, and I, I found that really fascinating. Uh, there's a quote I came across last week or two weeks ago. 
take this however you will, because I think there are okay. so many different directions to go from here. But I think it stems off of what you were talking about there in relation to human beings clinging to the past. The quote was, the past is a place of reference, not a place of re residence. The past is a place of reference, not a place of residence. I think majority of humans, including myself, a lot of times have periods where we cling to the past and we live in the past, and that prohibits us from taking action in the present moment to influence our future outcomes. Or because we reside in the past, it influences our actions in the day, which then influences our actions in the future, which just prohibits this never-ending cycle from ending. So thoughts on that quote? It's so true, and it re relates exactly to, to what I just said. Um, I think I'll, I'll steer that question in the direction that, um, you know, we, we cling to these past evaluations and our prior opinions, and oftentimes that actually prevents us from seeing all the options that we currently have in front of us, because you think that once you've committed to a course of action, you can never deviate off of it, but you forget that the world is very flexible. It's random. It's unpredictable. You know, Adam Grant writes about in his book, it's called Think Again. He says that careers, relationships, and communities are examples of what scientists call open systems. They're constantly in flux because they're not closed off from the environment around them. And we know that open systems are governed by two principles. There's always multiple paths to the same end, and the same starting point can be a path to multiple different ends. And so I think that in a world which is random by nature, any goal or any past evaluation that or, or any identity that you currently cling to has the potential to be completely upended and uprooted by like a year of intensive growth and discovery. And so, you know, I think this is very relevant at a time when a lot of people are graduating because in commencement speeches all the time, people say, find your passion, find your goal, identify it, work backwards from it and stay bounded to that, that goal, no matter what, never give up on it. And I've always thought that like, this is kind of terrible advice because in my opinion, it's far better to work forward from promising opportunities in the present moment rather than either work forward from an opportunity that presented itself 10 years ago or work backwards from a world that you don't yet understand and a version of yourself that you haven't yet met. When you look back on your life retrospectively, everything seems to have occurred in a very logical and linear chain of events, but you forget that randomness and luck and optionality are like defining forces in the world. And if you had an honest conversation with yourself, you have to admit that at several key junctures in life, you actually had no idea what was coming next. It only becomes clear and can be explained logically when you have the benefit of hindsight to look backwards. So my goal, my, my goal in saying that is embrace opportunities as they present themselves discard your old like you should be constantly updating your beliefs you should be letting go of things that you believe five years ago go because the world changes because you change and that's okay i mean you say this all the time dominic it's like you have no it's something along the lines of like you have no commitment to be the person that you said you were five minutes ago mm -hmm. very hard to do admittedly but it teaches us the lesson that like you should if you're going to be evolving at the same pace that the world evolves you need to be changing and you can't stay rigid and you can't cling to rigid goals in a world that's inherently flexible. Next point here, which I'm really curious to dive into, specifically because the first half of this conversation, we use the term success multiple times. The point is success is largely the failures you avoid. Elaborate on this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, Real quick too, I, I, I mean, this is many of these concepts, but I love flipping yeah. these on their head where most right. people don't think of success in that way. Getting to success, yeah. they don't think of getting there by avoiding failures, right? Yeah, and, and this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. Um, because as a society, and especially being involved in like the circles that me and you are in, like where we think a lot about performance, we think a lot about what, is, what does success mean, we spend so much time collecting tactics and strategies on how to become more successful. But I'm convinced that after you make the few like highest leverage, highest impact changes in your life, like sleeping more, like reading more, like eating well, hydrating, all those things, there's like massive diminishing returns on any, any additional behavior that you add after that. And this became really clear to me last year. I mean, you know this, we were in conversation all the time. I was extremely busy and you think of being busy as like a bad thing, but in this case it really wasn't because it was kind of a forcing function in that it made me think about like what's really essential 
in, in pursuing success? Like what are really the necessary components? Because at the time I was like a full-time master's student. I was working a job that like was taking me 20, 30 hours per week. And then I was trying to run like 80 miles a week to be the best that I could in the NCAA. It made me think about not only the habits related to success, but also the ones that prevent success from happening in the first place. And I started developing this theory that people might be far better off identifying what their negative behaviors are because they seem to have a higher predictive value for impairing success than positive ones do for furthering success. And I came across these two quotes uh, that I'll just read verbatim because I can't say them any better. Uh, one of them was from Charlie Munger. He's Warren Buffett's business partner. They have a lot of um, great quotes and ideas if you want to do some research. But he said, it's remarkable how much long-term advantage we have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid instead of trying to be very intelligent. <laughs> and then there was also a quote from James Clear, who you know I love, who said, success is largely the failures you avoid. Health is the injuries you don't sustain. Wealth is the purchases you don't make. Happiness is the objects you don't desire. Peace of mind is the arguments you don't engage in. Avoid the bad to protect the good. So I think what this all comes down to is just like you said at the beginning here, which was how do you invert the problem, right? How do you not just think about the ways that you can succeed, but also focus on the ways that you're likely to, to fail and avoid that altogether? You know, another Charlie Munger quote to tie this in is the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt unnecessarily. And we know that all the good things in life come from compounding, right? Whether that be like athletic performance, um, building wealth long term, like the value that relationships bring, they don't happen all at once. They happen over years and years through like incremental investments. And um, looking at my history last year, I was like, okay, I'm really, really busy. What are like, what are the things that I should avoid here that are most likely to lead to failure rather than how many more behaviors can I tack onto my already busy schedule to try and be more successful? And for me, it was really like, how can I avoid getting injured and how can I avoid getting sick? And it came down to like the three factors I always talk about, which is sleep, nutrition, and training errors. And this really made me think about this concept of um, identifying like asymmetries in life as it pertains to um, upside um, potential and downside risk. And that sounds really fancy. So I, I don't mean to be trying to sound really smart, but I'll give examples of what I mean here. So for instance, like when you're driving, texting while driving has an incredibly small upside, right? You get to someone in two minutes of their uh, response to you, yet the downside is like bottomless because you can text and drive and then get in a, you know, a motor vehicle collision that could kill you. I'm gonna take it down a notch from the extremes and just talk about how this could relate to running. A few examples that I was brainstorming earlier. I think that bad nutrition help, uh, hurts us more than good nutrition helps us. So like you can exhaustively strive for a perfect diet and try and get your perfect ratio of macros after you finish your workout. You can try and do the three to one ratio of carbs to protein to try to optimize hypertrophy and glycogen resynthesis. Um, but you know what's probably going to confer more of a benefit than optimizing your macros? Don't miss any meals, you know, or don't go eight hours without eating. So avoid that failure. You know, the other thing is like sleep, like the standard recommendation is get eight, eight hours of sleep. And um, I, I was started thinking like, okay, avoiding nights where you sleep for four hours is probably way more important than adding a whole bunch of nights where you sleep 12, right? And then in terms of training error, training at 95% of your capacity is probably far better than training at 105% because the consistency that you get from um, the benefits you accrue over time by slightly under training and remaining and, and keeping it sustainable far outweighs any short-term benefit you get by squeezing out these super maximal efforts occasionally, you know, and they come with so much risk of injury. And then the last example just, just that I'll share is um, in terms of fueling again, I thought a lot about this and this could be a whole nother conversation, but the cost of overfueling by a hundred calories is so much less than the cost of underfueling by a hundred calories, especially for a growing athlete. Like if you overfuel, maybe you gain one to two pounds and you're slightly heavier than your race weight, but guess what? You're racing because if you underfuel, that's a stress fracture waiting to happen. You can't even get to the starting line. So anyway, <laughs> I could go on and on here, but I just really think that avoiding catastrophic mistakes is, is a lot more important 
um, especially for a busy person, than any benefit or tactic for success can offer. And, and the last thing I'll share here, because I think this really drove home the point for me when I was learning about this, is something called the multiply by zero mental model. We know in math that like anything multiplied by zero is zero. And the idea here is don't take a risk in your life that can make everything go to zero. And like doping is a great example. Like no amount of accomplishment means anything if you cheated to get there, right? So don't do anything that gives you a risk of multiplying by zero. Avoid those catastrophic mistakes because a lot of times if you protect the bad and preserve the good, that's how you're gonna get success over the long term. You talked about last summer kind of having this mindset shift and going down this exploration of the many things that you just shared with us. You also shared the quote that I say all the time, you are under no obligation to be who you were five minutes ago. And that ties into the quote I want to share, which I probably, I've shared so many quotes with you over the years, not sure which ones I have left to share. Uh, But this one is, every skill you have today was once unknown to you. The human brain is a learning machine. Stick with it. I'm curious, just in hearing your story and your progression and talking so extensively with you over the past three, four years, we just changed so much as human beings, both you and I, we've seen it in each other. Um, how important has that been to you to be a lifelong learner and to constantly be curious and kind of abandon those former selves and seek out this knowledge and this information and maybe also kind of encourage the listener through your betterment through these pursuits, how they can kind of start to, to shift themselves through this pursuit of sticking with the, the learning machine that we're all gifted with. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that could bring us to a point that I really wanted to make today, which was how to make yourself more lucky in life, right? So I promise I'll get back to your question on like, why is it important to, to learn and to grow and to read? I promise I'll get back to that. I'm just going to take a little bit of a detour to explain what I mean. Uh, like I said, we, we were texting back and forth. And we really wanted to, I I wanted to like intentionally give you some kind of provocative ideas, right? That we could debate and that we can expand upon. And someone hears me say like, how to make yourself more lucky. They're like, what are you talking about? Like luck is this intangible thing that's inherently unpredictable. It's impossible to predict when luck is going to strike. And I'm like, yeah, I I agree with you. That, that is, that is definitely true. There's this quote from Morgan Housel who wrote a wonderful book called the psychology of money. He says, the world is far too complex for 100% of your actions to dictate 100% of your outcomes, you're one person in a game with 7 billion other people and and infinite moving parts. The accidental impact of actions outside of your control can be more consequential than the ones that you consciously take. I think it's foolish for anyone to say that luck doesn't have an impact on their outcomes in life. Of course, I wanna say that like you have agency, but you have to acknowledge that like there are forces outside of your control sometimes that can have a bigger impact on your outcome than the effort that you put forth. And so it really got me thinking like, okay, once you acknowledge that luck exists, can you harness this thing? And is it worth harnessing this, this, this concept? And I was like, well, it's, it's hard to even talk about this because like, how do you define what luck is? And then I came across this quote by Martin Luther King and he said, the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice. And that got me thinking, okay, justice is the same kind of thing. Like justice is maybe a little bit more measurable. It's a little bit more tangible. You can see when it happens, but it's kind of this, it's a little bit of this like amorphous concept. Like what, what really is justice? Just as you ask, like, what is luck? I've come to the conclusion that life is very, or luck rather, is very difficult to predict or harness, but it bends in the direction of those who are hardworking, kind, and bring value to the world. I read this book called uh, The Biggest Bluff by Maria Konnikova, and she brought up this idea called, um, or she, she kind of makes this argument that, are, that there are luck amplifiers in life, right? There are things that you, you can't maybe make yourself more lucky, but you can maybe make yourself more susceptible to luck striking you at the right time. And she said one of the best ways you can do this is what, what kind of mindset do you have in life? Um, and one of those is don't let failures destroy all of your progress. Sometimes you need to accept that because you live in a complex world where accidental actions outside of your control destroy your chance of success. Sometimes you need to acknowledge like, you know what, maybe I failed, but I didn't fail because of any wrongdoing or because I didn't put forth the right effort. Maybe it was a near miss. Maybe the chips just didn't fall in my favor, but they will next time, right? Maybe you need to think yourself, think of yourself more often as an almost winner rather than a failure. Because in that case, it keeps you in the game, right? And instead of, instead of folding your cars and exiting the game, if you can stay in the game, you can take more shots, 
And sometimes all you need is just more shots because it increases your likelihood of success. And um, tying it back to this idea of a luck amplifier, like if you embrace that mentality and you're good to the people around you, then people share things with you when you've experienced misfortunes, right? Like let's say that you just lost your job, right? Maybe let's say it was completely out of control. There were tech layoffs going on and nothing that you did or your hard work made you lose your job, um, but you did. And you tell people like, you know, and, and you're a good person, you tell your friends like, you know, this is really a bummer, like I lost my job, but like, I'm just waiting for that next opportunity. People will tell you when those next opportunities come, along, come around, right? That's a way to amplify your luck. Another way is if you're good to other people, let's say you're, you go through like a breakup, right? Maybe it was circumstantial, maybe it wasn't your fault, right? And you are good to the people around you. If someone else who's like single in the picture comes around, like they'll introduce you to them, right? Because you're salient in their mind. And I just like come to the, the conclusion that, you know, you need to be open to unusual and unexpected opportunities in life because it increases your surface area for luck. It increases your, the chances that luck will hit you at the right time. And then like tying it back to your question on like, how does learning relate to this and how does reading relate to this? Um, I think there's, there's like a handful of habits you can do that really, really are, are luck amplifiers in life that, that increase the likelihood that you will experience success. One of them is be a lifelong learner such that you can have an interesting conversation with somebody. Because if you have a fascinating conversation with somebody and they remember you because of it, then when they have another project where they need to recruit someone or hire one, hire someone, they will think of you. And, and, or the odds that they'll recommend you to somebody else increases exponentially if you left a good impression. I, um, I also think that like, if you know a little bit about, if you read enough and learn enough that you know a little bit about everything, um, you can just talk to more people, right? Like you can, you can increase the likelihood that a conversation that would have been a non-starter if you didn't have the knowledge can actually lead to something positive. A few other things I want to mention here in addition to like learning is, is write thank you notes, right? Say thank you in the world. Like it's, it's hard to express enough gratitude in life, right? And, and the downside of writing a thank you note is maybe five minutes of your time, but the upside is like potentially a life-changing relationship, right? Be enthusiastic. Um, I read recently that being enthusiastic automatically bumps up your IQ by 25 points because people are drawn to people are drawn to others who are enthusiastic, you know, uh, and be prepared. We, uh, in this podcast, we both listened to recently. Um, I, I don't want to take credit for this idea. It came from Alex Hormozzi again. He said, don't underestimate how much smarter you can seem with 20 minutes of preparation. Right. And then be respectful and punctual, be early. Um, because that's a sign of respect. So in conclusion, I think that what a lot of times people think of as luck is really just the byproduct of kindness, respectfulness, hard work, and making positive contributions to the people around you. And if there's any take home message I could give to the people listening is that kindness has unlimited upside. Don't ever forget that. As we step into championship season, both in high school, college, even professional, the races are starting to shape up with the Diamond League circuit coming up here. There's a term I hear all the time that is stepping up, you know, you got to step up for your four by eight team to make the, make the <laughs> state meet, or you got to step up to get some points for the team in the 3,200 or in the four by four, or you got to step up to make mm -hmm. the NCAA meet or hit your regional mark. Uh, and then I saw that you wrote the stepping up fallacy. So I'm curious to hear this one and how it relates specifically to this time of year where I hear this phrase quite a bit. Well, it's a perfect time to bring it up because, um, you know, this, this all went back to my idea of like inverting problems, right? It's like, why, why do people fail at the national championships? It's because a lot of times they're scared and they're trying to do something that they haven't done before. And they're in a very chaotic environment that they haven't experienced. And we know from like psychological research, we don't make good decisions under conditions of fear and uncertainty, right? So I think more people fail because they try to do something they've never done in an unfamiliar environment rather than relying on what they already know they're good at. So to elaborate on, on that a little bit more, Mike Smith said in a podcast, actually, I don't know who, it might've come from Coach Milt or Mike Smith. They talk all the time, so it's hard <laughs> to attribute credit to. <laughs> might've come from, yeah, like my college coach. He said, being good at the NCAA, NCAA championships is actually excellent, right? Being good, not great, at the NCAA championships is actually excellent. And um, 
Dwight Eisenhower had a similar point he made regarding military tactics. You think it's unrelated, but I think it's very related. He said, a military genius is the person who can do the average thing when everyone around him is losing his mind, right? So I think so many people try to be great. They try to step up, but when they actually surrender to an unfamiliar environment and they get swept up in the chaos and the pressure of a national championship, trying to do something different than you've ever done before hardly ever works, right? Like I think one of the greatest blessings I learned from my college coach was he said, your job as an athlete is to put forth the same effort at the season opener as you do at the national championship. Our job as coaches is to make sure that that effort gives you better results as the season progresses. So he would always say to us, and it was extremely comforting, nothing changes. You get to the line in NCAAs, nothing changes. Just do what you've always done. Don't try to step up and swing for the fences because I think a lot of times people fail because of that. The reality is that the calmest and most collected person at the inflection point of a race when the break happens, they have the most, the highest likelihood of executing their plan. So channel, be calm, be collected. And you do that not by trying to step up, but relying on the skills that you've already developed. We talked about, you know, the problem with, with goals before you, you briefly mentioned that. Uh, but I think what ties into the point of stepping up, I hear all the time is like grit. You have to have a ton of grit. Uh, and this ties into goals as well as having too much grit in the problem with that. So touch on this one. Yeah, I think I, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit early in our conversation and, and spoke on this a bit, but there are certain traits in life that are automatically elevated as being these incredible things. One of them is persistence. One of them is grit. But the point I was trying to make earlier, earlier in the conversation is, is grit really something you want to strive for if the goal isn't worth it in the first place? You know, um, and so I think that a lot of times um, it's very easy to... Uh, it, it's very, very hard to know when to stop, right? And I have learned over time that a lot of the most successful people that I know actually are the ones that have the courage to stop. And I say courage because it's counterintuitive. I say courage because it's almost the hardest thing to do sometimes when things are going well and like you're firing on all cylinders. Um, but you know what? Like one of the best ways to fail is by like I said earlier, training at 105% of your capacity and overtraining, right? The people who have the courage to rest, they have the courage to take a step back. They have the courage to take three days off when pain presents rather than just stubbornly like putting their head down and grinding through it, hoping that something's going to change. Like they're the ones who save three weeks of their season or sorry, rather they're the ones who take three days to resolve an injury that otherwise is going to take three weeks or more to resolve if you keep pushing through it. So I just think sometimes, you know, we need to actually have the courage to, to rest. We need to, ha we need to have the courage to change our, um, to pivot, to embrace new goals. Um, and to, uh, sometimes realize that for a high achiever, the best thing they can do sometimes is to take a step back and actually recover. Um, we think about all the stress that we put on our bodies and we glamorize the five by mile workouts, but that stress just creates the potential for growth. That growth is only realized through recovery and rest. And we've talked about this a lot, but I just wanted to circle back to that theme because it's so relevant. I feel like your life, and I feel like I've gotten to this point too, has just been an exploration of what it takes to be excellent and then trying to apply it to your own life and trying to be excellent yourself. And I think mm -hmm. you've read, I mean, I hope people, I think it's quite funny because as you've shared so many quotes throughout this conversation, uh, a thought funny in my mind is like, people are probably like, no wonder this guy is Dominic's mentor. Like, this is where he gets all his quotes from because <laughs> it's very, <laughs> very, very similar mindsets there. But you read all these books, you soak up all this information. But to that, you've been surrounded with such highly successful individuals, whether it's your college and current coach coach Chris Miltonberg or the athletes that you've been surrounded by, whether it's a Grant Fisher or Elise Cranny or Sean McGordy, or the list goes on and on and on. I'm curious, what are the biggest attributes you've seen in successful individuals that you've been around or that you've learned and soaked up from these documentaries you've watched or these books you've read or the podcasts that you've listened to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, this could, we could have a good conversation this here. This is like First a of all, podcast want... itself. Yeah, yeah. First, first of all, I just wanted to say that, like, you know, one way to make yourself more lucky in life, read more books, right? That's what I was saying earlier. Learn more so you can have more conversations so that more opportunities are presented to you. I don't think I'm necessarily that much smarter than the other, like, 
than like the next guy like down the line. I just think that I'm pretty good at collecting information and I write things down when I learn them such that I have now like this vast bank of knowledge that I just collected. They're really just other people's ideas that are recycled, but I'm always thinking about them enough such that when I experience certain things in life, I can actually apply that idea I read maybe three years ago rather than like rescuing it from the depths of my mind or just forgetting about it. I like I have these things top of mind. I have like we've talked about this before. I have like this 120 page Google Doc of all the quotes and ideas that I've been exposed to so that if there comes a time when I want to think critically about something, I just access that document. And like those are seeds for ideas that I can develop further. Right. So anyway, I just want to say, like, I, I don't think I'm all that smart. I mean, my brother, my brother right now, my twin brother's in med school. He's crushing it. Like, I think he's way smarter than I am in terms of just like memorization and apply like problem solving ability but i think i just collect ideas and then have those ideas accessible to me at the right time so oh, this is that's, called that's alex osberg being humid humble right here <laughs> i'll disagree well well that you're, you're talking about being provo- provocative on the podcast next episode will be me debating you about how smart you actually are but anyways go on go on yeah no we can we can definitely do that um but you're right so going back to the attributes of, of highly successful people one of them is this idea that um they don't get like their process. They're not completely derailed by failure. Right. Like we, we talked about this before, like, again, another way to get more lucky in life, stay in the game, right. Take more shots because if you take more shots, you're more likely to, to, to earn some points. Right. And I think that a lot of times people who are too discouraged by failure, um, they just leave the game prematurely. Right. And then you, then you have absolutely no chance of success to begin with. So you have to embrace, acute failures for chronic gains right and i think the people that i that i've seen go on to be really really successful are able to see the connection between everything they realize that where i'm at on may 1st even if i'm not as fit as i want to be does not necessarily mean i'm going to be out kicked on you know june 15th or July 3rd. I mean, Grant Fisher last year, I mean, he's one of the most successful people that we know and that your audience knows. He got outkicked by Joe Clucker at the uh, US 10K championships, right? And man, he was he was upset about that, you know, but he was like, he had an unwavering belief in himself that that never went away throughout the process. And he realized that, you know what, like, the way that my training is structured and in the bigger scheme of things, I might have to take this loss because I'm trying to gain fitness right now, just so that I can express that fitness in six to eight weeks time. And then we saw what he did at the world championships, right? He was, he was um, in metal contention in both the 5k and the 10k, which is incredible. Um, I also think that the most successful people in life are not afraid to put themselves in position to succeed. And I think that sounds incredibly simple, but you look at this in the track world, a lot of times, like some people gain confidence by developing evidence over a long period of time that they can do something. But the highest performers I've ever seen act before they have evidence to suggest that they can be successful. I mean, Thomas Ratcliffe is one of my, uh, he's been on the podcast before. Um, he's, he was my teammate at Stanford for several years. He lived out here in North Carolina with me for a year. I mean, this, this guy's ceiling is as high as I've ever seen. His like mental toughness and his resilience is like completely off the charts. Unfortunately, his career has been curtailed at different points by various injuries. But like, if he can just, if he can make that click and he can string together months and then seasons like i mean he's going to be an unstoppable force and one of the things that i admire from him the most is that you see him toe the line maybe he hasn't raced in six months you see him toe the line he puts himself right behind the rabbit no matter what like every time and sean mcgordy did the same thing like in college like they put themselves in position to succeed whereas other people might handicap themselves right in those situations they're like you know what Ah, i haven't done the workouts yet to get to that point I haven't had enough like tune up races or like rust busters doesn't matter for the most successful people. They are not afraid to put themselves in a position to succeed, even if that means that they could fail. Um, The last thing I'll say is that the most successful people I've come across view stress as enhancing, not as debilitating. And I'll expand on that a little bit. There's some really interesting research from Kelly McGonigal. She wrote a book called the upside of stress. um, And there's, there's, very two, there's two distinct mindsets that you can embrace when it comes to stress. One is that stress is debilitating, and the other is that stress is enhancing. The reality is when you toe the line and you feel those butterflies in your stomach and you feel your heart pounding in your chest and you feel slightly nauseated, like these are things, and you, you can do that through the mindset of, oh, no, I'm panicking 
I'm nervous, I'm not ready to go. Or you can realize, wait a minute, this is my body preparing me to do something that I haven't done before. It's, it's my body making me version 2.0 of myself. Because physiologically, that's actually exactly what it's doing. You feel nauseated because you're diverting blood flow away from your gastrointestinal system to your working muscles. Your heart's beating faster, so it provides more oxygen per minute to your working muscles, right? And those nerves are actually adaptive traits. Those are enhancing traits. And the best people I know, like, they get nervous, they get scared, but they realize this is something that enhances my performance, not something that's debilitating to it. Which goes directly back to our last conversation on perspective. <laughs> you nailed it in a word. Yeah. Like, the perspective completely changes the outcome and how we view things, right? And I think there's no right. better example than that one. You were talking about earlier the, the study about the three things that are uh, like commonalities in the most successful individuals or something of the like. And one of those mm -hmm. was a superiority complex. So I yeah. think that ties into the quote I'm about to share. There's a quote that I share that Yassine Abdallah, who's one of the top runners in the NCAA, runs for the University of Tennessee. Um, I want to say he ran like 739 or 742 in the 3K this past year. So just mm -hmm. ridiculous. And um, he, he shared a quote or said a quote or created the quote on the podcast and he's just like this character and people love him because of it. He's the most listened yeah. to guy on the podcast. Like he has the most popular episode. And he said this, this saying that sometimes you have to be so confident in yourself that other people think you're delusional. And at first <laughs> I thought, wow, that's bold. But the more and more I thought about it, I think it's very true that what you consider as goals and as things that you can achieve to the outside world who doesn't understand the progress in your framework and, and thinking mind, they naturally should probably think you're delusional for thinking those things. Um, and it's just kind of like a popular phrase that has kind of gone around the running effect community and, and different people on social media. Like, you know, you got to be so confident in yourself that other people think you're delusional, which I do think goes hand in hand with the superiority complex thing. Yeah. So any thoughts on this? I already said it earlier in the podcast, the quote about Conor McGregor, reasonable men never achieved anything. And Conor is a very unreasonable man. I mean, part of the reason he got to where he was is because he believed things before anyone in his life even thought they were possible, right? So it's very true. And I do want to be careful because I think a lot of the conversation that I bring up in the beginning is like, what are the costs of pursuing success in the wrong way? But you also have to realize like to be successful, like you need to be a little bit delusional and, and that, that's, that's okay. It all goes back to the self-awareness on like, what do you, like, do you know what you're sacrificing and is that cost benefit worth it to you? And as long as, in my opinion, you're not harming people around you, go for it, you know? Um, another thing I'll say there is there's a difference between superiority complex and that, I think, rather, I should say, there's a difference between being confident in yourself and assuming that a win is going to be easy, right? From that podcast you sent yesterday, it's like you gain absolutely nothing from underestimating your competition. And you hear this all the time. It's like, oh, we're just so much better than these guys, right? Like we can just roll over them. We can crush them. What do you gain from that? You, you're, you don't prepare as well. And if you were to enter that fight and, or I shouldn't say fight, but if you were to enter that competition and win, you're not going to win by as much as you would have otherwise. So like, what do you gain from assuming you're so much better than everyone else that you don't need to work hard? So I think that's the distinction here. You can, you can, be you can believe that you're confident, but that can never come at the expense of your work ethic. Right. You need to be a little bit paranoid that your competition's always going to be outworking you, because if you think that you've done enough, eventually someone's going to beat you. I think a quote that puts that perfectly is confidence is positive and empowering, but arrogance is deadly. Be confident, but not at the expense of your respect for others. And I think that nails that perfectly. And there's maybe one way to close out today's episode. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going through my, my list of quotes here uh, and that one related to that. This is completely out of the blue, but we're going to end. We are already in the deep end from like minute one. So the deeper, deeper end. Um, and it's a saying that I do truly believe. And I think it is probably the biggest gut check for people who this resonates with. The quote is, they say true hell is when the person you are meets the person you could have been. The best time to start something was five years ago it's just like the, the time is now, right? Like the time to start something is now because you know what, in five years, if you look back on this juncture in life where you could have con gone two different ways and you chose the easier path, think about all like compounding works in a both a positive and negative way. And in inaction has a cost, right? Like we don't think about it often, but inaction does come with a cost. And if you compare two paths in life, one being 
the the person who takes ownership of their circumstances, who puts in real work, who makes himself more lucky through hard work and developing relationships compared to the person who just maintains the status quo. I mean, there's an enormous gravitational pull towards mediocrity in life. And one of the reasons I love sport is that to do anything with yourself and to make a name for yourself, you have to be exceptional. You can't be average because being average just gets you lost on the results list, right? And if you can actually take the path less traveled and do the hard things, make the hard choices, who you're going to be in five years is just like leaps and bounds different than what you could have been by just maintaining status quo. So you never want to meet the person that you could have been. You want to be the person that you could have been. And that is presented to you every day in the choices that you make and the decisions that you make. So maybe that's a good place to end. One day or day one, you decide. Ladies and gentlemen, another podcast with Alex Osberg was a pleasure. Thanks, Dominic. Absolute pleasure as always. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of The Running Effect with Dominic Schleter. I don't take your time for granted, and I hope that today's episode impacted you and left you walking away inspired and all the more motivated to chase after your biggest goals and walking away a better version of yourself. Make sure you're following the podcast, have given us a five-star review, and consider sharing with a friend. Through that, we can reach new people and hopefully inspire them in the process. Also, make sure you're following us on social media at The Running Effect to stay up to date on all the exciting projects and all the new episodes coming out. Generally, we release two to three episodes per week, so stay tuned for all of those coming your way shortly. I hope you're running and life is going well. Guys, keep chasing mastery, and I will catch you in next episode.